Assalamu alaikum, everyone, and welcome to the third annual Imam Ali conference. I am so excited to be here with you all today. Uh, today, I am joined by our esteemed guest, Professor Liaka Thakim. Uh, he is the Sharjah Chair in Global Islam at McMaster University in Canada, a prolific writer and speaker. He has authored and or translated eight books. He is currently working on his ninth book on Quranic exegesis. He has also written more than 140 scholarly works, which have been published in various journals, books, and encyclopedia. His latest book titled Shiism Revisited, Ijtihad and Reformation in Contemporary Times. Welcome, Dr. Takim. How are you? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure and an honor to be here in front of you. It's an honor uh, for me to be here with you as well. So I wanted us to get right into the topic today. Um, we will be discussing there is no compulsion in religion. Uh, this topic has taken storm not only on social media, but also the news in light of the recent events that happened a few months ago. And people are giving their different interpretations, their perspectives on what this statement means in terms of uh, in regards to Islam. So I would love to get your perspective and your expertise around this by starting off with the first question, which is, why are women forced to wear hijab in a Muslim country? I think that uh, we need to understand that the wearing of hijab is a different issue at all, uh, completely um, because this particular verse was revealed in a different context. Uh, that when you're wearing, uh, when you're asked to wear hijab in a country, it's, uh, it's basically to preserve the chastity and the norms. And let's not forget that the hijab is not only for women, it's also for men. So it is more concerned with, um, the question of hijab is more concerned with upholding certain moral standards in a community than the issue of um, la ikraha fiddin, there is no compulsion in religion, which is a different context completely. Thank you so much. And so why do you think people are punished for leaving Islam if there is no compulsion in religion? Yeah, I think that this is where uh, the issue of la ikraha fiddin comes into play, uh, the verse of no compulsion. Because the uh, context, according to the exegetes, according to the commentators of the Quran, uh, came about when a Christian called Salim bin Auf converted to Islam. Uh, and he wanted uh, his sons to be to become Muslims too, but the sons refused. And Salim came to the Prophet Sallallahu and told him about it. And that's when this verse was revealed that there is no compulsion in religion. Basically, what it means is that faith is a very personal decision, uh, and nobody has a right to enforce faith on any other uh, person. So, for example, the Quran says, amongst many other verses, If Allah wished, they would not have become mushrik or they would not have associated other partners. We have not made you uh, as uh, a watcher over them. And you neither are you a guardian over them. In other words, your duty or prophet is uh, merely to proclaim the message not to enforce it by making sure that people convert. Now, I think it's also important to remember here that the Quran does not state 
that force is to be used against unbelievers. It is only to be used against those unbelievers who dem demonstrate hostility to Islam or who threaten the Muslim community or the uh, political state. The Quran goes even further that when Jannah that if they offer you peace or profit, then you must accept peace. In other words, the Quran is very much pro-peace. It's against violence, but violence is a last resort. But the issue of La Ikraha Fiddin is very interesting uh, in that what the Quran says and what some of the rulings have come out are two different things. Because in our fatawa, in our uh, rulings, anybody who uh, renegades or who leaves Islam, what we call murtad, is to be uh, killed. And now there are different nuances on this too also, depending on whether the person who converts was actually born a Muslim or who converted to become a Muslim. Interestingly, the Quran does mention apostasy, which is to leave Islam, but it never ever uh, prescribes an earthly punishment for it. It says that this is something that uh, Allah will punish for. In other words, if a person decides to leave Islam, do I have a right to go and kill him or her for that? And according to the Quran, at least, it says no. Within our fatawa, in our books, it says yes, simply because in the early period, apostasy, that is leaving Islam, was connected with um, a threat to the political order, to the Islamic State. People were leaving Islam, joining the enemies and so on, which caused a major problem for the Muslim community. But in, in today's context, where the person is living on his own or on her own uh, and decides to leave Islam without creating any kind of chaos or anarchy uh, in society, are we then to enforce the same law as the previous scholars did? And the answer for me and for a number of contemporary scholars is no also. And I would like to add here that... Uh, because this is an important verse which people really need to understand the context of. And because people don't understand, sometimes they misuse it. Then thinking, well, you know, I'm in a Muslim country, but how can I be forced to do this and forced to do that? We all live in countries in the West or wherever, whereby we have to abide by the laws of the land. And if we don't like it, then we leave. Um, I live in Canada, for example, and I have to pay taxes. There are certain laws that I have to abide by, whether I like them or not. Similar in Islamic State, but the question of La Ikrafiddin is not applicable of whether must I do this or must I do that. It is applicable more in terms of faith between the human and the divine. Interestingly, and I'd like to just share this particular anecdote with you. It's a long discussion. I don't have the time to go into it. Our scholars in the past divided the world into two main spheres, Darul Islam and Darul Harb. The abode of Islam, where Muslims lived, and the abode of uh, war. So those who are living outside the boundaries of Islam were seen as living in a, uh, the house of war, although they later created other spheres. And these spheres, these abodes do not occur in the Quran at all. It is what we call a juridical construction, meaning the scholars constructed it, especially by the Sunni scholars living in the 8th and 9th centuries in order to justify the political expansion of the Muslim um, boundaries, they introduced these fears and thereby justifying the expansion of Muslims abroad. 
And what also happened in the same, and we're talking primarily in the Sunni world, by the way, that there were different views on this, that supposing you're going to a land where there are non-believers, they're not um, Christians or Jews, they're not Ahlul Kitab, but they're non-believers. Can you force them to believe or not? And here again, the question is uh, perplexing for many juries because some juries like Abu Hanifa and Shaibani says, no, you can ask them to convert, but you cannot force them to convert. Using this verse, whereas the Shafi'a is headed by Imam Shafi himself and Sarakshi and a few other scholars said, no, we are allowed to forcibly convert them in order for them to live under a Muslim state. So you can see the uh, issue here is not about whether where you can wear hijab in a particular country or not. It's an entirely different issue. And for the Shias, by the way, the Shias postponed what we may call offensive jihad at all during the absence of the infallible imam. They said the scholars can allow for a defensive jihad. In other words, when somebody comes and attacks a Muslim state, but uh, Shias are not allowed to... Um, declare an offensive jihad until the Imam Sahib Zaman al-Islam appears. Wow, thank you so much for that. Um, and then I guess this is a not really a personal question, but a question I think that I've seen come up really amongst the youth uh, is that a lot of uh, young Muslims feel like, you know, their families may use this statement, you know, there's no compulsion religion, but they'll use it in a cultural context to force their kids to practice or, um, you know, be a certain way. Um, what is your expertise or advice on how can families um, exist and coexist better together with, you know, a lot of our young growing up in Western countries and their mindsets are being influenced by other um, opinions and perspectives. Yeah, again, I, I see many a time this particular verse is being uh, misquoted in my view and misused by certain members of the family who do not like um, Islam being imposed on them. And I think we have to understand that the parents are duty-bound to at least expose their youth to a proper um, upbringing, to proper Islamic teachings. Of course, you cannot force a youth to follow the dictates of Islam. Once he or she has grown up, then they are free to negotiate their rituals, their faith with Allah. In the initial stages, of course, um, we are uh, required as parents to at least discipline the children to bring them up with certain moral values, certain standards, certain living, especially in this environment where there are so many other voices talking to our youth. You know, we have the social media now, you have WhatsApp, you have phones, you have television and so on. So many voices which come and talk and sometimes corrupt the morals of the youth in our own homes. They don't even have, uh, need to go out. Yeah. Uh, the cell phone can be a blessing. It can also be a curse at times. So that verse of Laikrafidin does not apply in this case at all. Because when a parent enforces certain moral standards or discipline on the child, the intent here is not to force a child to believe as much as to make sure that they are brought up with certain proper moral values. Once the child becomes an adult, whether he or she chooses to follow Islam or lead a particular lifestyle, then, of course, it is up to them. Thank you. No, absolutely. I agree with that in terms of disciplining children. And when it comes to within your home, um, 
this applies very differently. And I really loved how you um, earlier mentioned how this is the relationship between us and the divine. Um, this is our kind of um, allegiance to Allah, you know, that we are willingly and wanting to become Muslim and be Muslim and practice as Muslims. Um, and like you said, there's so much out there with different perspectives, different um, interpretations of this Quranic ayat. But I feel that you have really clarified, at least for me, clarified it um, and made it very clear. And I wanted to thank you for joining us today again for the third uh, annual Imam Ali conference. And inshallah, I invite you all to join the other uh, discussions that will be upcoming. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.